So with that, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. And we'll finish our little Summer of Psalms series this Sunday. Seriously. All right. Psalm 145, the title of this sermon is The Unsearchable Perfections of Yahweh. The Unsearchable Perfections of Yahweh. God's Word, I'll read the first two verses. A praise of David. He says, I will exalt you, my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's turn to him and ask his blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our sovereign God, I ask that you would give us insight to be able to grasp what are the heights and depths and length and breadth of your love, to be able to start to only apprehend what we ultimately can't fully comprehend, the greatness of who you are. And I cry out to you, God of heaven, because it's, it's too much for any human to be able to truly do. We need the work of your spirit to awaken our hearts as we sang, poor sinners are blind to your glory and your holiness. And so we need you to illumine our hearts. For some of us, we, we believe in you and we have been saved and we have seen, but we ask that you would give us more sight. And for others, God, others might even be blind to knowing who you are and I ask that you would save them. I ask at the sight of seeing your perfections that they would turn from death and turn to life. Um, that you would make them alive together with Christ. They would leave this place rejoicing. That we would all leave rejoicing. Put us all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All good things must come to an end. Now that's a trite phrase. We've all heard it before. But it can feel so true. Good meals, as we were speaking of feasting, they end. Vacations come to a close. Fourth of July fireworks are incredible for a few minutes, maybe. And so it, it can feel true that all good things must come to an end from what we see in the world, from our own life experience. But the book of Psalms presents the exact opposite truth of life. You see, the last five Psalms are called the Hallelujah Psalms, named because in the Hebrew it repeats the word Hallelujah over and over and over again. And they're filled with that word for praise, Hallel, Yah, 
praise to God, praise to Yahweh. And it is Psalm 145 that kicks them off. And together they say in the face of a world that says all good things must end, hold on, praise of God and enjoyment of him, it will actually never end. And so in Psalm 145, David declares three perfections or attributes of Yahweh so that we would have assurance that our God is perfect and enjoyment of him will never end. Before jumping into the perfections of Yahweh, David declares his praise for Yahweh in verses 1 and 2. Now, before we read those one more time, this is the only psalm described simply as a praise of David. A lot of other ones are called a psalm of David, a mikdah of David, a psalm of repentance, on and on. But this one alone is simply called a praise of David. And it's an acrostic. And so if you have a Bible, some Bibles actually have the Hebrew letters above each line uh, for uh, for every single verse. What that means, what an acrostic is, is maybe you made one in elementary school for your name. So T-R-A-V-I-S, totally cool, really awesome. And on and on, you use a letter for each. Uh, I actually found one from elementary school from back in the day and <laughs> realized I needed some humbling from my elementary school days. <laughs> and also a better vocabulary. Uh, But this is an acrostic, which means each line begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In its structure, in its content, in the way it was actually meant to be sung, David is declaring, so to speak, from A to Z, that we have a reason to praise and bless the Lord. Verses 1 and 2, I will exalt you, my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. In this call to praise, David declares that God is his God. And that he is king. That he is both personal and sovereign. And because of who God is, David says he'll bless him every day. He will actively open up his heart and consider the things of God and say, I bless you and I am blessed because I have my God. Every day. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. Forever. Which means because God is who he is, because he is perfect, whatever the day holds and whatever yesterday had and whatever is coming tomorrow we have a reason to bless him. But what are these perfections? What are these things about God that because of these, we can say, I will bless him no matter what comes every day, forever? Well, as we will see, these perfections are that Yahweh is great, Yahweh is gracious, and Yahweh is righteous. Now, one perfection, the greatness or the graciousness or the righteousness, 
one of these isn't completely isolated from the others. So there's in these verses some weaving in and out of these perfections with one another. As Alec Matir, who is a brilliant commentator on the Psalms and also a really good theologian, as he said, God is one. You remember that, that verse from Deuteronomy 6? God is one, and therefore there is no conflict within his nature. His greatness, it includes his goodness and righteousness. His graciousness includes his greatness, and his righteousness includes his gracious love. Now, nevertheless, David identifies three perfections or attributes of God clearly for us. And he holds up each one at a time, as it were, like a jewel, and lets it turn around so that we can see its sparkle and see the glory of God as we muse upon our God who is great and gracious and righteous. So the first perfection of God we're going to look at is that Yahweh is great in verses 3 through 7. We'll begin with verse 3. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. The first thing we see about the greatness of Yahweh is that his greatness is unsearchable. David brilliantly sets the stage for us as we begin to consider the greatness of our God. He says, Yahweh is great. And he is highly, or as it says in the ESV, he is greatly to be praised. And then he says, and his greatness, it's unsearchable. Well, what does this mean? Well, the first thing we must comprehend about God is that he is beyond our full comprehension. This doesn't mean we can't know anything about God, but that we are never going to touch the bottom of his greatness. His greatness is an ocean, as it were, and there is no floor to this ocean. It doesn't matter how long you dive down. It goes further, deeper still. That is to say, you could read every systematic theology that has ever been written, and all of the church fathers, and all of the reformers, and all of the Puritans, and every good work that has ever been penned, and all the poems that give praise to God, and sing all the songs that have been written about God, and you wouldn't have begun to scratch the surface of how great our God is. In the book of Job, contains some of the most astonishing descriptions of the greatness of God. It speaks of his power to stitch out the heavens, to stretch them, to hang the earth on nothing, to still the seas with his power, to crush the most powerful of his enemies like it's nothing, to breathe and make the heavens beautiful, the book of Job says. And then it follows up by saying, Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. These are but the outskirts. God's greatness is infinite. It is overwhelming. 
It is weighty and glorious, and it is pervasive. Everything about this God is great. And in comparison, everything about us is small. He is God, and he is great. And his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 4, David says, And this greatness, it's meant to be passed down. It's meant to be handed on. One generation, David says, shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty deeds. Do you ever wonder what you have to pass on to the next generation? What kind of impact you can make? How you can make your life truly count? If you have children, what great thing you can give to them? A watch or baseball cards. What, What is it that we can give The greatest thing, church, that you could give your children is to tell them about the greatness of our God. This is one reason why why I'm genuinely excited for next week as Pastor Biedebach is going to come to serve us uh, in the evening by helping us grow in family worship in our homes. And one reason why I wish when I was uh, living with some other guys I would have done family worship with them That was said, I don't care if it sounds corny. You're my family. Let's get together. Let's pray together. Let's sing to God in this house. So everyone, I want all of you guys out here, I want us to tell our children. And if if we don't have children, I want us uh, to tell the youth or I want us to tell our roommates. I want us to tell our coworkers about the works and the mighty deeds of our God. One generation is going to praise God and the way they're going to do it is by us telling them about the greatness of our God. What this looked like for the Israels was they would tell their children. They would have ceremonies and the children would ask, why are we doing this? Let me tell you, son. Let me tell you, daughter. Because we were once slaves and our God took us out of our slavery. He freed us. He conquered every other false god, and that's what he did for us. And for us today, the way we tell others, the way we pass down the greatness of our God is we simply tell the stories of his greatness in our life, how he rescued us from sin, how he rescued us out of our slavery, and how he has been unfathomably kind to us. Not only is God's greatness to be passed down, but in verses 5 and 6, his greatness is to be meditated upon. David says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, which is just three words in a row grasping at the beauty of God, the glory of the splendor of his majesty, and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will muse Men shall speak of the strength of your fearsome acts, and I will recount your greatness. What do we think about? What do we muse upon, to use the word of the psalm? What do we meditate and think over all day long? What are the things that go through our head? How am I going to fix that problem? What, What if this happens? What if that What are the things that we wake up in the middle of the night and the thought is already there? William Plummer, one commentator on the Psalms, said, Nothing has a more pernicious effect on our character than low thoughts of God. 
You've heard the quote, as A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We are to meditate, to muse upon the greatness of our God. We're to stop ourselves literally in our tracks sometimes and say, I'm not going to think and worry and be anxious about that. I'm going to remind myself, my God is great and his greatness is unsearchable. But as we see in verse 7, not only is God great and his greatness is unsearchable, not only are we to pass down his greatness, and not only are we to meditate upon it, not only is he great, but as we see in verse 7, he is good. They shall pour forth the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully, of your righteousness. All these things could be true about the greatness and the power and the majesty and the weightiness of our God. But you understand, if he's only high and exalted and holy, if that's all he is, we have reason to fear. Why, why should we not fear a God who is only powerful? But by, but by the grace of God, by the sheer goodness of God, what we find when we come to the Bible is not only is this God great and powerful, but he is good all the way up and all the way down. And it's not his goodness versus his greatness, but he is both together at the same exact time. If God were only all-powerful, all only creator, only great in might, we should only have reason to fear him but as the beavers said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he isn't safe, meaning he is great and he is powerful, but he's good. And so as we remember God's works and as we pour forth the memory of them, we see in them the abundant goodness of God. And we have joy in our hearts knowing of his righteousness. This coming together of God's greatness and his abundant goodness and righteousness leads us into the second perfection of God. As we see secondly, Yahweh is gracious. He is great and he is secondly gracious as we'll see in verses 8 through 16. Verses 8 through 9, we'll read first. Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Yahweh is good to all, and his compassions are over all his works. Verses 8 and 9 are truly the center of this psalm. Everything radiates out from this glowing core. Verse 8 is almost a verbatim statement of God himself from Exodus 34, verse 6. And let me remind you of the scene there. Moses asked Yahweh to let him see his glory. Let me look into the weightiness of who you are, the shining light. I want to see you as you truly are, Yahweh. That's what Moses said to him. And God responded, that he let his glory pass before him, but he, Moses can't see his face. 
said, I'm going to pass before you, but you're going to be cleft in a rock. You're going to be hidden there. Because if you saw my face, you would die. But I'll pass before you, and I'll let you see my back. So remember what we said about the greatness of God being unsearchable. The pinnacle, this pinnacle of God's own self-revelation, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in loving kindness, this expression from God is only but the back part of who he is. As Gregory of Nazianzus said, one of those ancient church fathers, these are the back parts of God. He leaves behind as tokens of himself, like the shady reflections of the sun in the water, which show the sun to our weak eyes because we cannot look at the sun itself. So not only is God's greatness, his immensity, how powerful he is, not only is that unsearchable, but as we talk about the grace of God, we're actually not scraping down to the bottom of his graciousness either. These are but graspings of the fullness of God's grace. That's what we mean when we sing that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Not that it has a greater sign, not that it's a little bit above, but that it's infinitely deep. That we're only starting to scratch the surface when God reveals to us what he is like. That we can't stare into the sun. And so, like a reflection of the sun, we get to hear the words, God is gracious. God is compassionate. He is steadfast in his loving kindness. His grace, too, is unsearchable. And David goes on and describes both God's common grace in verse 9 and his special saving grace in verse 10. God's common grace in verse 9, Yahweh is good to all and his compassions are over all his works. God is good to every man, woman, and child. Everyone, regardless of redemption, everyone experiences the kind gifts of God in creation. God didn't reserve the coolness of the ocean and the warmth of the sun to only Christians. He has shown his kindness to everyone who walks this earth. His compassions are over every single one of his works. Over all his works, to all people. Everyone has a reason to praise God, as Romans 1 says, but no one rightfully responds. And God, he has generally shown his common grace to all. But David, he goes on in verse 10, and he says, everything that God does will in the end praise him. And using, using parallelism, if you remember that, where one line in a psalm is followed by another line that parallels it and gives it further clarification or meaning, he parallels it and he highlights especially the work of God that will praise him is the work that he has done in his holy ones. Verse 10, All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you, and your holy ones will praise you. 
They will bless you. So let's talk about Yahweh's saving grace. The word there for holy ones, it's the word hasadim. That's the word used. It has the same root as the word hesed, which is God's loving kindness. And it's used to designate those whom God has marked with his loving kindness. The holy ones are the ones who are marked by his hesed. You see, these holy ones, they're not those who have never done wrong. They're not those who have never been stained by sin, but those who have been saved by a gracious God. These ones, everything's going to praise God, but as we go further in, especially those whom God has saved. And what do they, what do they tell of? What do they praise God for in verse 11? They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might. What do they praise God for? They praise God for the glory of God's kingdom and God's might. Now, what is the glory of this kingdom? Well, it's actually that Yahweh's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. Yahweh's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. What is this kingdom that all of a sudden appears in this psalm? Well, contextually, immediately, this is a kingdom which David himself was promised in 2 Samuel 7. Where God said, I promise to give you and your offspring a kingdom that will never end. So God promises to David a kingdom. But in the psalm, it's speaking of God's kingdom. So what's going on here? Well, interestingly, in 1 Chronicles, which tells the same story as 2 Samuel, there's a slight variation. And that is the kingdom, that is David's kingdom, is said to be God's own kingdom. How is this? How is the kingdom that God promised David, that David's singing of and now reflecting it's your kingdom, how are they one in the same? Well, it's because the king of this kingdom is none other than the son of David, Jesus, who is also the son of God. And I want to ask you if you know how you get into this kingdom. Verses 12 and 13. They praise God for his kingdom and talk of his might to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom, they say, David says, and they say too, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to every generation. So how do you get into a kingdom which is full of might and gloriously majestic, and enduring forever from generation to generation? Well, as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. As David said in response to God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, and I want to turn myself there, 2 Samuel 7, God promises David all these things. That he'll give him a kingdom that will never end, that a son of his will endure forever. And how does David respond to this promise? Verse 8, 
So now, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture, from the following, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you. Um, sorry, I was about to read all of the covenant that God gives to David. We've already covered that. He promises a kingdom that will never end. He promises a son who will endure forever. Let's look especially at verse 18 uh, at David's response to God for this gracious promise. Then David, the king, went in and he sat before Yahweh and he said this, Who am I, Lord Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord Yahweh, for you have spoken also of the house of your slave concerning the distant future. And this is the law of man, O Lord Yahweh. And again, what more can David say to you? And you know your slave, O Lord Yahweh. The way you get into this kingdom is through might, but it's God's might. Why did God choose Israel? We know it wasn't because they were more than everyone. It wasn't because they were impressive. They were fewer. Why is it he chose Abram? Why did he choose David? Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? At the end of the day, all we can say is sheer grace. And the greatness of this kingdom is seen, as Alan Ross says, in the condescension of the king to meet the needs of his creation. You see, the might of our king is that he laid down his life for sinners to bring them out of the kingdom they were in, the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And as the psalm stretches from A to Z, so too God's grace is about the greatest heights of his kingly rule. From A to Z, God is great. And from A to Z, God is gracious. But we're also going to see it extends all the way down, God's grace. Not just his kingly rule and to bring us into a kingdom, but also in his sustaining grace in providence. We see that in verses 14 through 17. After Yahweh's kingdom of grace, we see Yahweh's sustaining grace. The heights and the depths, both the big and the small. Verses 14 through 16. Yahweh sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all wait on you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. We see the God who is king, who reigns on high. He sustains those who fall. If you're reading the McShane plan, we just encountered these words recently from Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one high lifted up, who dwells forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the crushed and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. 
this God whose kingdom will endure forever and is forever, he reaches down and he raises up the lowly, those who are bowed down. Verse 15 especially speaks of God's providential care for every creature and his verse 16 shows his feeding hand towards them. And Jesus picks up on this kind of reasoning in Matthew chapter 6. He says, look around. Think about birds. Think about grass. Who takes care of them? How do they get their food every day? Christian, if he so cares for the animals and if he clothes the grass of the field, why do we doubt that he's going to sustain us with his grace? Even in the trials of life, the setbacks, the hopes that are deferred, the things that we thought should have come by now or things that came at us that we weren't looking for that are difficult and crush our spirit, Christ is gracious to those who are his and fall down. He raises up the lowly. He heals the brokenhearted. Yahweh is great. Yahweh is gracious. And lastly, Yahweh is righteous. We'll see this in verses 17 through 20. The first truth we see in verse 17 about his righteousness is he is righteous at all times. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. What David is saying is God only ever does what is right. He is sovereign over all things. And so I want you to understand there's nothing coming into your life except through his caring, fatherly hands. It's not that he's right at all times, but there's some things he just didn't have control over. He is sovereign, has control over all things, and in all things he ever does, he is righteous. He is, as the next verse, or as the next line says, he is holy in all his works. This means that there was never a time for any of us that God has ever done us wrong. The Lord does give and the Lord does take away. But as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. He is holy in all he does. And some translations you use instead of the word holy there, they use the word kind. And that's a possible translation but it's actually the same word that we talked about earlier, the holy ones, the hasidim, which is the plural, and now it's just the singular, the hasid. And so when we read the psalm and we see all that David is doing, we consider the parallelism that Hebrew poetry and the psalms so often use, it seems the most likely that what David is doing here is driving all the way home that he is righteous in all of his ways and he is holy in all his works. But don't think for a second that means God isn't kind in his dealings because verse 18 assures us that he is. In verse 18, we see this God who is righteous at all times, who is holy in all his works, he is never far off in his righteousness. Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. 
we might be tempted to think because Yahweh is so great and so righteous and his kingdom is so powerful that he never listened to someone like us. Like maybe one or two prayers somehow break the ceiling and get into heaven, but it can't be every single one that he hears. But the word of God assures us that Yahweh is near to all who call upon him. To all who call upon him in truth. In fact, I want you to know that God would be unrighteous to abandon his own people when they cry out to him. That's what God says about himself in his word. I am near to all who call upon me. But the second line is very important, isn't it? To all who call upon him in truth. It clarifies. It rules some things out. God is near to all people who call upon him in the truth. This means that those who believe in the God of Islam, their prayers are not heard like Christians' prayers are heard. Not Jehovah's Witnesses who believe Christ was a created being. Not people who were simply born Christians. It is those who know the truth of the gospel. It is those who don't believe something like God should help them because then they have something to offer God. To those who call upon God in truth is those who call upon him on the basis only of his grace and his righteousness and his greatness, not their own. They've despaired of everything in themselves and they've said, my only hope is in him. To those who say, Christ in him crucified, that is my only plea. So hear me, God. And to them, God hears every time. And he always responds in his wisdom. Verse, 18, verse 19, he never abandons his works of righteousness. He will work out the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry for help and he will save them. God's righteousness for us who are in Christ, who have trusted in him, called upon him in truth, despaired of ourselves and trusted in him. God's righteousness also means for us that he fulfills the good work that he has begun, as it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The desire that God has given his children for righteousness, he will satisfy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And you can take this as a promise that he's going to work out the desires that are right in your life. You may have a desire that is good and right and godly, and you wonder, is God ever going to fulfill this? Take this verse to the bank. He fulfills, he works out the desire of those who fear him. And as he knows when to give rain and when to feed birds, so he knows when and how to fulfill the righteous desires of his children. He will will hear our cries and he will answer. And verse 20, he will always keep his righteous promises. Yahweh keeps all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. 
he will keep those who love him. When we, when we sing the words of he will hold me fast, those words are true. He's not going to let us go. Though, though, though our affections sometimes are cold, though we sin, though we struggle in life, he will hold us fast and he will bring us safely home. In John 10, the Lord Jesus himself said, all who are mine will come to me. I'm not going to lose any of them. No one's going to pluck them out of my hand. And just so you know, he's also not going to let you leap out of his hand. He's going to deliver those who love him. He's going to keep his righteous promise. But maybe you're like me, and you wonder, when you read that verse, he'll keep all those who love him. You wonder, do I love him enough, though? And at this point, I would encourage you to do this. Don't forget all the rest of the psalm we just read. Remind your heart of his greatness, of his graciousness, of his righteousness. And then we don't look in ourselves for a perfect love from God, but is there a true love for him? As, you, as you've seen this God, who is great and gracious and righteous, could you love a God like that? I think you could. Could you forsake your sin by his power and turn to him? I think you could. He will keep those who love him. But he will destroy the wicked. And this is a warning shot, as it were, a, a loving firing to hear. You have heard, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you have heard all the greatness and goodness and graciousness and righteousness of God and how they all meet, and let me put it together for you really clear, they, they all meet explicitly the clearest picture in Christ Jesus, that he's righteous and that he's gracious and that he's great and that he would lay down his life for sinners and that his offer of salvation is held out to all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Regardless of what the sin is, the most atrocious deeds, first, I guarantee they've probably been done by somebody in this room, and he offers grace to cleanse you of your sins. But this isn't something that goes on and on forever. While the worship of God will never end, it is today that the wicked have a chance to turn to Christ. And he won't turn you away. All who come to him will be received by him, but there is coming a day when Christ returns or when you die that it will be too late. And so hear and see the goodness and graciousness and righteousness of God, especially in Christ, and turn to him. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Christian, you will, for all of your days, never stop praising God for all of his perfections. When you enter into glory, 
And I, I struggle to do this in this life. But when you enter into glory, there's not going to be a struggle to praise him anymore. Because we'll see him as he is. And then we shall be like him and free of sin. And heaven is ultimately heaven because God is there. So what does this mean we must do? Well, if we're going to praise him forever, if we're going to bless him forever in the future, then we bless God today. Are you experiencing a time of relative ease in life and enjoying God's good gifts? That might be you. Bless him. Are you in trials? And you don't see an end in sight to the trials. You don't see how you're just going to fix quickly the things in your life. Consider how he has promised he will work out all things for your good. And tell yourself, I'm going to praise God in heaven for how he answers my prayers right now. So because I believe that, I'm going to bless him right now. That is faith. That is saying, I know God's character. I know he's going to deliver. I know I'm going to praise him for how he answers me. And so right now, regardless of my circumstances, I bless him. And if you're here today, and as we were just speaking of, you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, there is coming a day where your mouth is going to bless God. The Bible says, as Bo prayed earlier, that every tongue will confess. Every knee is going to bow to the Lord of Lords when he cracks the sky and comes back to judge the world in righteousness. The text even here says, all flesh will bless your holy name. But my plead with you is why wouldn't you do that today? Why wouldn't you turn from your sin today? And maybe somebody, nobody in here would assume that you haven't turned or you have secret hidden sin. Turn from it. You're going to bless him one day. Why wouldn't you start today? Call upon the great, gracious, righteous God. Say, God, I have no righteousness in myself, but I heard about you and I trust in what your son did and you will see the greatness of God and the graciousness of God and the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Lord, you are beyond all our own ability to describe how great you are. Your greatness is unsearchable, your grace is greater than all of our sins. And you have shown your righteousness astonishingly in giving your son to die in the place of us. And so God, I ask that we would be able to join in with David. That we would bless you right now with what's going on in our life. That we would bless you tomorrow regardless of what's going to come. Because of your character, we know who you are and we know that we will bless you forever every day. Would we start now? Would you help us to...
comprehend, to fathom what your love is. Thank you for showing us so great a salvation. Thank you for being a perfect God. Pray this all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.